practically in my head. John and Susan Sutton were living a great life. John, a successful attorney, and Susan, a devoted wife and mother, had it all. A beautiful family, a gorgeous home, and enough disposable income to enjoy it all. But that changed in a flurry of gunshots on the night of August 22nd, 2004. What would be revealed during the investigation that followed was an intricate web of greed, deceit, and betrayal. Susan and John Sutton were really well-respected members of the Coral Gables community. John, of course, was a, a really well-known civil attorney in town, very well-regarded, very well-respected. So they were sort of this power couple in, in Miami. I met Susan in 1974. Susan was a head nurse of surgical intensive care. We did a lot of traveling together through the Caribbean. Um, I had um, a couple of different boats and would take them to the Bahamas and scuba dive and fish. They were a rich couple who had two children. They lived in a beautiful home, and they really had the world on a string. Everything seemed to be great in their lives. There were uh, infertility issues. Susan was very anxious to get pregnant, and we had an opportunity to adopt Christopher. Chris Sutton and his sister were both adopted around the same time. They weren't blood related, but they both came into the family. They grew up with all the trappings of a well-heeled family. They were what you would think was a perfect family. They had achieved the American dream. On August 22nd, 2004, Teddy Montoto came over to dinner. Teddy was my law partner, and it was kind of a birthday party for Susan. Everybody was there, and we had dinner. Susan made dinner and sang happy birthday, etc. and everybody left. So Susan and John Sutton went to bed, and they slept in different rooms because he snores. I went in to the bedroom to watch TV. The Olympics were on. I noticed that the bedroom door was shut, which was surprising because I would not have shut the bedroom door. And Susan wouldn't, would not have shut the bedroom door. I heard a bang, but it sounded like slamming the door, or it sounded like something fell. Within a split second or so after that, 
I saw somebody in a black hat, black shirt, black pants. Next thing you know, the repeated bangs from what was later discovered to be a 9mm Glock. I bounced around on the bed, ducking bullets, the first four, from what I understand, in my left hand, my right hand, my left shoulder, my right arm. The last two bullets went directly in my head. So I was um, bleeding heavily. I woke up from that, somehow found the phone, uh, let the police know that I was in sort of a big hurry to have an ambulance and police, dropped the phone, and they called me back. Uh, they said, you've got to walk out. And I told them it's really inconvenient to walk out of the house. I didn't know anything about what happened to Susan. I knew she was there, but I didn't know what happened to her, and um, I knew I was in such bad shape that I'd be lucky to make it to the front door. At some point in the middle of the night, somebody comes in, they first shoot John, and then they go and they shoot Susan several times, and then they come back and they shoot John again. And Susan is killed. I don't remember pain, but I do remember walking out of the house and there was quite a commotion and met the police at the front door and they had me walk out to a fire rescue truck out in the street, really in pretty bad shape. I knew I was hurting. I remember coming out of the ambulance at the hospital, and I don't remember much for the next week or so. John, even though he's shot twice in the head, survives, but he loses his sight and he goes blind. It's a miracle that John survived his injuries to begin with because he was shot directly in the head. If it had been a couple centimeters left or a couple centimeters right, it might have just outright killed him. I lost the tip of my ring finger in my left hand, bullet through my shoulder on my left shoulder, almost lost my right thumb, a pretty big injury here a bullet on my ulnar nerve in my right arm, and then the last two bullets were through my head, in the right temple and out the left lower jaw. Whoever did the shooting tried pretty hard to kill me. For the upscale community of Coral Gables, the vicious attacks on a prominent attorney and his wife were unimaginable. Susan Sutton was dead, and her husband John was clinging to life in an intensive care unit. With no clear suspect in the home invasion assault, investigators scrambled to find a motive that might point them in the right direction. 
What happened was, at first, a real murder mystery, okay? And it seems like something right out of the movies, right? Where someone wearing dark clothes enters this really, really nice house and basically assassinates Susan Sutton and shoots John Sutton in the face, presumably to kill him. And you have this real whodunit in a part of town where this stuff never happens. John Sutton wakes up in the middle of the night, hears a sound, and sees someone approaching towards him. Next thing he knows, he hears shots, Susan dead in their bed, and John rushed to the hospital. Well, they didn't tell me much for a while. Uh, at the hospital and I asked how how's Susan doing and my daughter said she's in the next room uh, they're working on her over there well uh, they didn't tell me that she had died until later I don't know how much later but a lot later the speculation at the time really was all over the place because here you had a lawyer who presumably had enemies, right? Could it be a you know client that was upset with John? Could there be some, you know, love triangle thing gone wrong? Sort of runs the gamut of, of the of motives, right? Early on. It was a lady whose name I won't use, and she had threatened to shoot up my office. So a couple of the homicide detectives went to visit her because a boat had gone down the waterway at high speed uh, that night, and the thought was that the boat was similar to hers. So Teddy Montoto was John Sutton's law partner, and they started investigating him because they realized he showed up at the scene right after cops did. So the first suspect that they happen upon is Teddy Montoto, which is Mr. Sutton's law partner. They just recently closed a million dollar case, so everything should be fine. However, in speaking with him, they also start to suspect that there's something that he's left out. As they started investigating, they realized that Teddy and Susan had been having a sexual affair. Now that would be a classic example of a motive to commit murder. Ultimately, they questioned Teddy Montoto, and he agreed to take a polygraph. And he failed. He failed the polygraph. And in the police's eyes, this was certainly a person of interest. A marital affair with a partner of the law firm certainly had a motive. And when they pushed further, he mentions that earlier that same day of the murders, that he had been out shooting and that he is an expert marksman. Now, this apparently raised their eyebrows at the time. 
Teddy was a shooter. Teddy frequently carried a gun. Teddy uh, had um, gunshot residue on his hands. The next morning of the shooting, those were big issues that drew them to Teddy. People do crazy things in Love Triangle. So they thought maybe that Teddy Montoto was the one who did it. I never suspected that it was Teddy. Of course, anything is possible. Maybe it'll snow tomorrow in Miami, but anything is possible. He was cooperative. He had an alibi. He was, he was uh, forthcoming. And soon they realized he wasn't the guy. He showed up right after cops did because he had been on the phone with Susan Sutton. It turns out that Teddy Montoto was actually on the phone with Susan at the time of the murder, and he was cleared of the murder because when they pulled the phone records, they saw there was a phone call from Teddy to Susan. He had some problems with a polygraph test because he was having a relationship with Susan, which he denied and thereby flunked the polygraph test. The level of heartbreak that John has suffered in finding out that his wife was having an affair with his own law partner and was on the phone with him at the time of the attack is one just terrible twist. It, it was a big deal, but there was a lot of bad stuff that was going on. It was a handful, to say the least. It was a handful. From the very beginning, there was a lot of really interesting clues for the homicide detectives to, to look at. Um, one of them was, of course, shortly after the homicide, one of the officers is speaking to, to Chris Sutton, and without even being asked, sort of just pulls out a, a movie ticket and says, look, look, we were at the movies. Volunteering information when no one asks the question, that automatically raises some red flags with the detectives. But it's not until seven or eight months later when police arrest Chris's friend, Garrett Cobb, for an unrelated crime and they find a gun. They knew they had the right guy. They had a motive. They knew why. They knew that he was just angry enough that he would do it. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area.
months after the horrific events of August 22nd, 2004, police have arrested Garrett Cop for the murder of Susan Sutton and the attempted murder of John Sutton. Garrett Cop is also one of Chris Sutton's closest friends. The question now is what would motivate Garrett to betray his friend by committing such a heinous crime? When police arrest Garrett Cop for an unrelated crime, they find a gun. And when they run that gun and they run it through ballistics and they're able to match the bullet with the bullets that were used to kill Susan and were used to wound John. They start interviewing Garrett Cop because clearly they have direct evidence that he's involved here. Garrett Cop knows Chris Sutton because at years ago when he was about 15 and Chris Sutton was about 21, they happened to live in the same apartment complex and they got to know each other. And from there, they would smoke weed together. Closer to the time of the crime, they had been selling drugs together and doing a lot of drugs together as well. I had very little dealings with Garrett. He was a small guy. I wasn't sure what they were up to, but apparently they were dealing drugs together, buying and selling. So I was never impressed with Garrett. And whatever they were up to, it was no good. Garrett immediately rolled over on his friend, and I think he realized, you know, in a lot of times these cases, it's sort of like whoever's first to the table ends up, you know, getting the better deal. They always want the mastermind, the one who kind of is the puppeteer and setting things in motion. And in this case, it was Chris. Garrett Cop says that he was supposed to get $100,000 from the inheritance that Chris Sutton would get after the parents were gone. They have his confession and they have the gun that ties him to it. So what they need to do is show why Chris Sutton would have gotten Garrett Cop to kill his parents. So when Chris Sutton was 13, he started acting out. Skipping class, you know, smoking, all the things that you kind of expect a teenager to get himself involved in. But he also had these anger issues, and those were a lot more concerning to the family. He was threatening uh, Susan, and to a lesser extent, myself. Uh, she was much more frightened than I was. He was cautious not to threaten me. He really started acting out, and it turned into something more than just, you know, a little bit of teenage temper tantrums. This was, like, really, really aggressive stuff. He was just someone that was very, very problematic, more than just your usual teenage angst. Susan found a letter that he and a girlfriend had written planning to kill us. And when she found that, we moved rapidly 
to get a restraining order. And he was then out of the house. They wanted to be able to get him on the right track and nothing was working. And that's ultimately what led to him being sent away to this boarding school in Western Samoa. Paradise Cove was this boot camp for children with behavioral problems. And it was 7,000 miles away from the family. You know, it's very strict. You have people who are trying to change your behaviors. For Chris, anyways, it was not easy, as I imagine it wouldn't be for any of the students that went there because everything is rigid and disciplined. I feel like I'm, I'm just been, I've been fighting to get me out of here. Uh, I've been here for a year now. Uh, I feel like I'm in the same spot as some of you I don't know how I feel like you guys from the out here when I get home with you. I'm still thinking for you with you, but I don't even know if I want I don't even know if I want you guys to know. He did learn a lot and they had a good educational program. And we went to Samoa too. And he seemed pretty happy because when we were there, he was having a great time playing volleyball and swimming in the ocean and so on. So the stories of uh, it being torture were, I think, greatly exaggerated. He wanted to come back, I believe, to Miami and play. Chris thought he was going to get out of Paradise Cove when he was 18, and he didn't because his father actually petitioned for him to stay for an extra year. And that really sent him on a tailspin. Susan and I were told by the owners and operators that he was not successful and that we should take action to keep him there and maybe they could bring them around. They knew they had the right guy. They had a motive. They knew why. They knew that he was pissed off about having to go to this Paradise Cove. You know, he certainly had the opportunity. They knew that he was just angry enough that he would do it. So, Next thing you know, two detectives said, well, we've got good news and bad news. What's the good news? Well, the good news is that we've got the shooter, and he admitted it. What's the bad news? He inculpated your son, Christopher. He said, wow, the shooter said that? What's the shooter's name? The detective said, the shooter's Garrett. And he said that Christopher hired him to kill you. Wow. So this was uh, one bad surprise after another. And then the next thing I knew was the detectives called me and said, we've got Christopher in custody. And that was the end of that. 
The question always is asked, was it random or was it someone that they knew? And honestly, the son getting someone to go and, you know, attack his parents was probably the last thing we expected. Christopher Sutton has been arrested and charged with conspiring with his friend Garrett Kopp to murder his parents. The prosecution team of Karen Kagan and Kathleen Hogue will argue that Chris Sutton was motivated to kill his parents because of a toxic mixture of greed and resentment. Chris's attorney, renowned defense lawyer Bruce Fleischer, will say that Garrett Kopp acted alone. Shrouded in black, the gunman left his car and headed out into the stillness of a Sunday night. As the gunman got close to the targets, to those bedrooms, he heard a noise. For the TV in the master bedroom was on. The gunman grabbed his block, turned to the left, towards John Sutton, who was lying in bed, and cranked off two or three rounds. But ow, bow! John flipped off the bed. The gunman then turned to the right, where Susan Sutton was, also in bed, cranked out five or six rounds at her, before then turning back to John Sutton, firing at him until the gun was empty. How do you get the jury to believe that Chris Sutton would have gotten Garrett Cobb to kill his parents. And want to, un, to accept the motive that he was a part of this. The lead detective, Larry Bellew, told the defendants some of the evidence they had against him. That Garrett Cobb had given a statement incriminating him and that his girlfriend, Julia Driscoll, had also given a statement to the police. The defendant's reply, he burst out sobbing, put his head on the table and said, I'm There is no forensic evidence in this case which links Chris Sutton to these crimes. Whether it be DNA, whether it be fingerprints, whether it be blood analysis, even firearms. Bruce Fleischer is one of the most well-known defense lawyers in Miami. He has represented a ton of killers in very, very high-profile cases. He was in a drug haze. He needed drugs to use. He needed drugs to sell and he needed money. I think Bruce Fleischer's approach was to discredit the witnesses. We know Christopher didn't pull the trigger. We know that Garrett Kopp was looking to score uh, money. And Chris had some marijuana in the house. He goes into the house. He goes into the bedrooms. Remember, he knows the layout of the house. The Suttons are home and awake. 
He's surprised, he panics, and he shoots them both. Calls John Sutton, Your Honor. All right, and uh, believe that your assistant will help bring him up. I have been expected over time to say, "Wow, this was really scary." Going in the courtroom, and all these people, and the courtroom was full. Well, I've been in that courtroom a hundred times, a thousand times, maybe more. So. I wasn't even blind, one to be intimidated by a courtroom. That was like home base for me, no problem. I certainly do. Okay. Thank you, Miss Hogue. You may proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning. Good morning. At some point in your marriage, you made a decision to adopt. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. The child that you adopted is the defendant in this case, Christopher Sutton. Correct. How old was he when you got him? It was two or three days old. It was an exciting day. In my practice of clinical psychology, I find um, many cases of adopted children where they have anger built into their character. The usual theme is they feel like they are a throwaway, that they were rejected, and that's why they're with the family that they're with. Now I want to fast forward to August 22nd, 2004. Right. Ready? Yeah. Um, before that date, did you receive a settlement check um, on, a, on a case that, uh, that you ended up settling on? Yes. Um, we made a couple of rather very excellent uh, recoveries in personal injury litigation. So... Um, you have been sitting in court and you heard testimony about a check for $1.3 million. 1.350. Okay, 1.350. I stand corrected. Did you receive that check sometime the week before August 20, Sunday, August 22nd, 2004? Very shortly before that, correct. In fact, did you have plans to have a... a a dinner on Sunday evening um, to sort of celebrate that settlement as well as your wife's birthday. Correct. Susan's birthday was Friday, August 20th. And we decided to have um, Teddy Montoto over and Juliet and Christopher. John Sutton was charming but also just devastatingly um, effective in how he talked to the jurors. I mean, he still had the courtroom presence that was, you know, that had made him one of the top lawyers in Miami. Early on, 
when we had scheduled this, um, Christopher had made it very clear that he um, was going to see a movie that night, okay? So they, they came over, I don't know, seven or a little bit before. They came over, and he was out on the pool deck talking on his phone. Hey, you know, what's going on? Come on in with mom, you know, birthday time. And then they went off and went to the movies. After dinner? Correct. Okay. It was simple. Testifying against Christopher. Testifying to the truth. Once I heard that Garrett was the shooter, I was convinced that Christopher had put up the shooter, especially because Garrett was his main man with whom he was hanging out. So I was flat out convinced. I, I got on the bed and I sat down and sort of leaned back on the pillow such as that. I looked over at the TV and I saw the door was either shut or partially shut. And it startled me because I didn't shut the door and Susan wouldn't have shut the door. So, it's, it's, so what's in the next that, thing you remember happening after, after in those the door shut? Very brief moments. I see the door shut. All of a sudden, I see a black hat, a black shirt, black pants, and bam. How were you feeling during that time? I was what I was what they called in denial. The fact that he had no emotion about his parents, but had emotion about how he was treated is a hallmark of a, a sociopath. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. As the trial progresses, a clearer picture of who Chris Sutton is begins to emerge. The prosecution team will parade a string of witnesses on the stand to clearly illustrate the defendant's deep-seated anger and resentment. Anger and resentment that led to an obsession with revenge. What did you tell him? They arrived, I was in front of the residence, um, and he was with his fiance, Juliet Driscoll. They basically, I introduced myself and advised them that, you know, I was an investigator, homicide detective with the county, and that I was part of the teamwork in the case, and I just wanted to provide them with the information that we had at the time, that his mother had in fact passed away, was deceased, and that his father was in critical condition in the hospital after being shot by, at that time, an unknown assailant. Okay. And what was his reaction? Um, 
Christopher was pretty calm. Juliet was crying. Um, did he make any statements to you at that time? Yes, he made a statement to me that I found to be very unusual. Um, the same. He, okay. he told me that he had been at the movie theaters the night before and that he had the movie stubs. And if I wanted this movie stubs. Okay. When the investigators pulled the video surveillance of the movie theater, they noticed he was on the phone when he was walking out of the movie theater. So the investigators pulled his phone records. There were 170 phone calls between Garrett and Christopher, including right after he, Christopher walks out of the movie, probably reporting that he killed us. So they had already hooked up Christopher and Garrett. I didn't have any of that evidence. I knew nothing. Come over here, are you able to raise your right hand? Do you swear firm that the evidence you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Yeah. Your cop, if you'll please have a seat right there after you're seated, if you'll kind of scoot the chair forward, pull the microphone closer to you. Keep your voice up nice and loud so that all the members of the jury and the people here in court can hear you. Ms. Kagan, you may proceed. Thank you, Judge. Mr. Cobb, did you shoot to kill Susan Sutton? Yes. And did you succeed in killing Susan Sutton? Yes. With what type of a weapon? Handgun. Did you shoot to kill John Sutton? Yes. Did you succeed in killing John Sutton? No. Did you also shoot John Sutton with a handgun? Yes. When you look at Gary Cobb's motives in testifying against Chris Sutton. He needs to save his own tail because he's looking at life in prison. Garrett cut a deal to take the death penalty off the table and save his life. When you did that, Mr. Cop, were you acting on your own or as part of a plan or agreement with someone else? It's part of a plan. And who was the person with whom you were in a plan to shoot John and Susan Sutton? Chris Sutton. Would you look around the courtroom, please, and see if you can identify for us the person you know as Christopher Sutton? I'm right there. Okay. Can you give us an item of clothing? White shirt and glasses. Mr. Cobb, at the, perhaps the end of June, the beginning of July 2004, did the defendant propose to you that you two should kill John and Susan Sutton as a way to get money? Yes. And what do you remember the defendant telling you about how much money you might expect to get? Upwards of 100000 Is that $100,000? Yes. Okay. Bruce ultimately tried to discredit each and every witness to the point that they had a motive, they had a reason to lie. The only person I think that didn't necessarily have a motive was his girlfriend. His girlfriend didn't truly have a motive to testify against him. What did the defendant tell you about his parents having sent him to a program in Samoa. 
that he shouldn't have been there that long, that he shouldn't have been there at all, that um, he was kidnapped. What did the, the defendant tell you should happen to his parents or he wanted to happen to his parents because of them having sent him to this program in Samoa? He would say they deserve to die. Did he tell you um, whether they needed to pay for taking those years from his life? Yes. It is my opinion that one of the reasons why women are attracted to bad boys because they do their acting out for them and or because they're a forbidden fruit. Now, when the defendant told you his parents deserved to die for sending him to the program, did he tell you anything about how he could make that happen? It would be easy. He could find someone to do it. He could do it. It wouldn't be hard. During that time frame, which is within the few weeks before the murder, do you remember the defendant telling you that things would be getting better financially soon? Yes. Juliet's testimony had a huge impact because here you have someone close to the defendant, close to Christopher. She was not somebody who uh, was trying to save her own skin. I don't think she wanted to be there. And that, from a prosecutor's standpoint, is your best witness. Um, do you remember whether there were plans for a little dinner that Sunday evening? Yes. So what happened? What did you do? We went over. Um, we, had, we had dinner. Okay. Do you need a minute? This might be a good time for a break anyway. As far as Miami crime lore goes, the detectives that worked on this case are among the most well-respected and legendary homicide detectives, especially Bellew. When you read this information to the defendant, what was his response or reaction to that information? Well, in addition to that, I told him that there was a full box of telephone records concerning him and his friends and Garrett Cobb. Sutton almost immediately began to sob, stated, I'm placed his head on the table. A uh, short while later, raised his head and said, what's the minimum maximum time I can do uh, or that I would be looking at? What did you ask him at that point about his parents? I said, did you hate your parents that much? And his answer? I said, you tell me. Chris Sutton was hard to root for as an observer because he was very arrogant. He was very cocksure. Even when he tried to show emotion, he was crying about his time when he was in Samoa, and it definitely felt rehearsed. How were you feeling physically during that time? I was what I was what they called in denial. 
You need a break, Mr. Yeah. The fact that he had no emotion about his parents, but had emotion about how he was treated is a hallmark of a, a sociopath. Sociopaths, by definition, are predatory. These are people, quite simply, who do not have a conscience. Are you telling the jury that Julia Driscoll lied when she said that um, things would be better when your parents were dead? Absolutely. And when Julia Driscoll told the police or testified that you wanted your parents dead, that was a lie? Correct. And that when Julia Driscoll reported that you believed, you said your parents deserved to die for what they did to you and sending you to the program, that was a lie. That's what she said in order to not be arrested for murder. My aunt, my question was really simple. Was that a lie? Yeah, to save her own life. Now, isn't it true that you asked Detective Bellew what the minimum and maximum time it was that you would be looking at for this case? I said, what's the minimum and maximum time I can be looking at in this case that you're built, that you're falsifying against me? Yeah. Ah, so you told Detective Bellew from the get-go that he was falsifying this case against you, correct? I told him that he was full of <laughs> yeah. So you're telling this jury that Detective Bellew failed to tell this jury that you told him that the case was full of He read about five minutes worth of quotes, and we were there for four and a half hours. I think I said a lot more than five minutes worth of quotes. It's rare for a defendant to take the stand in a capital murder trial, but Chris Sutton made the decision to do so. The jury witnessed firsthand the many faces of his personality. While being questioned by prosecutors, he appeared brash and arrogant. But when questioned by his own defense counsel, he was reduced to tears. The jury will have to reconcile just who the real Chris Sutton is. How can you forget the graphic testimony of John Sutton when he testified in this witness stand? and what he endured and suffered. But you cannot let sympathy go to John Sutton and his disability and his loss. In this case, the state has no motive. They don't have a motive that's good enough, that's sufficient enough, that's reasonable enough for you to believe that Chris Sutton would hire a Garrett cop to do this. It was an emotional case. Susan was dead. I was blind. We went through three weeks of torture. Um, There's no winners. Christopher's a loser. Susan was a loser. Everybody lost out here. I lost out. And this is a bad, bad picture. That man, the defendant, had profound anger. 
hatred and greed. His parents were now worth nothing more to him than a means to get money. Money they owed him as he deserved a payback for what his parents had done by sending him to that awful program in Samoa. So he got his little do-boy, Garrett Cobb, to do the dirty deed for him. Garrett Cobb was the perfect patsy, a Dixie cup, a throwaway, the means for Christopher Sutton to insulate himself to wrap himself in the cloak of deniability. But now the time has come to determine his accountability. What motive did Garrett Cobb have to go in and attempt to assassinate both those people? None. What motive did Christopher Sutton have to want both his parents dead? Plenty. The viciousness that was employed uh, without emotion, in my opinion, suggests that he had issues in which he was able to rationalize why he did what he did. I wasn't nervous over this verdict because I've waited for a couple hundred verdicts over time. I trusted in the fact that the right thing was going to happen. Thank you. Please be seated. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm asking you to reach the verdict. Is that correct? That's correct. State of Florida versus Christopher Sutton. We did the jury in Miami Florida this 21st day of July 2010 on the defendant Christopher Patrick Sutton. As the count one, guilty of first-degree murder is charged in the indictment. As the count two, guilty of attempted first-degree murder. Sign this 21st day of Sociopath knows whether they're doing right or wrong, so legally that's not a mental illness. Do we need to hold people responsible when they have what's called mens rea, when they understand what they're doing is wrong? The courts say, yes, we should hold them accountable. The issue that Chris knew right and wrong, and he was very angry, those are all true. So at this time, as the count one, Mr. Sutton, the court poses a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. As to count two, attempted first degree premeditated murder, life in prison without the possibility of parole. Ultimately, I think John wanted justice for his wife and I think justice was achieved. Christopher Sutton was found guilty of first-degree murder and attempted first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. I have an urge, which I have so far crunched, to go see Christopher in jail. I can't forgive 
this kind of premeditated, long thought out, bad behavior because he wouldn't go to school, he wouldn't do the right thing. I cannot reconcile in the insanity and the devastation that was caused. I could, if I felt like wasting my time, focus on hating, but it's not gonna do me any good. It helps to look forward. And I think the saying, the past is toxic, is a good one. Chris Sutton was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for conspiring with Garrett Kopp to kill his parents. Garrett took a plea deal in exchange for testifying against Chris. He will be eligible for parole after serving his 30-year sentence. I'm Tamron Hall. Thank you for watching Someone They Knew. There you have it, another edition of the Court TV podcast, number 150, in fact. If you're enjoying these episodes of Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall, you can see them on demand on the Court TV website. Just check the show notes for a link. And of course, to see the best legal coverage on TV, tune into Court TV every weeknight at 8 p.m. Eastern for my show, Closing Arguments. Thanks again for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area. What's going on, everybody? It's your boy, Tyler Pie Guy. And listen, make sure that you tap in and subscribe to the podcast and subscribe to the THC Media Network for all other podcasts and shows that are available on our network. And turn on those notification bells, all right? Hit that subscribe button. Stop playing.